We got into the prison about 11 a.m. They took all the other prisoners off this bus and then four men came on. They lined me up against this red brick wall and here comes Lieutenant Bonner. He walked right up to me, right up to my face. He was like very quiet, was like, there's no speaking in my prison. Dead men do not speak in my prison, especially do you understand me? Just like that, same tone of voice, nothing raised, nothing threatening. And that Lord quietness, like I, I did, I, I, I went to answer. I was like, backhanded me right in the mouth. And like stung like you only. And then I was thrown into this world where there's no sunlight and it's deadly silent. shower was the most vulnerable time. If you're going to get somebody, that's the place to get them. You got access to them. There's no handcuffs and they're naked. I had only been there a few days and I walked into the shower and just as I turned the corner, there was a Puerto Rican boy and he had sharpened the pork chop bone and then stabbed this man in the back of the liver with it. And the guy started flopping and then they just cut all the water off and just beat all six of us senseless and drug us back out of the shower. And then they served food. Like they got everything cleaned up and began serving lunch. And it went on as a routine day. And two guys were arguing because one guy didn't get enough bread on his tray. And I'm like, this is crazy. You're so whacked out of your mind that you're going to call down to the guard. Hey, man, I only got one slice of bread on my tray when a human being just died. Peace be upon you. So that documentary you heard was from Nick Yaris uh, from a documentary entitled The Fear of Thirteen. And uh, apologies for the uh, graphic nature, but I thought it was a good segue into this uh, episode regarding capital punishment. So the story of Nick Yaris is that in 1982, he was convicted of rape and murder of Linda May Craig, and he was sentenced to death uh, for that crime. And he sat in death row waiting for his execution. Two decades went by, and he sent a petition to the Pennsylvania courts asking for his appeals to cease and for his sentence to be carried out so he can be put to death. But before this occurred, in 2003, DNA evidence proved that he had not committed the crime. And in 2004, he was released after spending 22 years in prison. 14 of those years was in solitary confinement. The institution that helped exonerate Nick Yaris was the Innocence Project, who as of January 2020 has documented over 365 DNA exonerations in the United States. 
21 of these were exonerees who had previously been sentenced to death. These are individuals, 21 individuals, innocent individuals who were sentenced to death that the Innocence Project proved they were innocent via DNA. So this poses a startling question. How many innocent people are we killing in society? Because if 21 of these individuals were exonerated on death row, meaning that their death was imminent, how many innocent people have we killed? So the National Academy of Sciences in 2014 did a study, and this is just purely statistical. It's not uh, evidential. They're saying, look, based on the statistics that they know from exonerees, people who escaped death row, how many people do you think they killed uh, in any given year that were innocent? Would you say that it's one out of a thousand, one out of 10,000? Well, the reality was about 4.1% of people that were killed, the National Academy of Sciences believes that they were innocent. That means roughly one out of 25 people that are executed have actually were actually innocent. These were innocent individuals who did not commit the crime. Now, obviously, the problem is we don't know which one out of the 25 it is. But that provides a very startling fact that we know for a fact that we're killing innocent people when we sentence them to uh, capital punishment. And this has been a deep philosophical question for thousands of years. In order to enforce capital punishment, you know, one of the, the most horrendous punishments that can lawfully be carried out, what is the tolerance a society should put in the number of innocent people that they're willing to kill in order to bring guilty people to justice? So irrespective if the United States agrees to it or not, the number they're putting it is at about 25 to 1, meaning that they're willing to kill one innocent person if it means bringing 25 guilty people to justice. So back in the 12th century, the Jewish legal theorist Maimonides wrote that the exalted one has shut this door against the use of presumptive evidence, for it is better and more satisfactory to acquit a thousand guilty persons than to put a single innocent one to death. So here he's stating that he believes that in order to keep the law to justify capital punishment, the threshold that society should try to maintain is that for each innocent person that is wrongfully executed, that a thousand guilty people are properly punished. So this is the threshold that Maimonides is setting. Around the year 1470, the Chief Justice of England, John Fratescue, said, One would much rather that 20 guilty persons should escape the punishment of death than that one innocent person should be condemned and suffer capitally. So here, he's setting the standards at 20 to 1, meaning that a 5% innocence death rate is acceptable in a society if it means that 95% of guilty people are punished with capital punishment justly. In the 16th century, Matthew Hale, who was the, uh, the successor to Fratescue, said, For it is better five guilty persons should escape unpunished than one innocent person should die. So now he's setting the threshold at 20%, meaning 20% of people 
can be punished or killed who are innocent if it means bringing 80% of guilty parties to justice. And even uh, Benjamin Franklin in 1785 said it is better a hundred guilty persons should escape than that one innocent person should suffer. So now he's setting the threshold at 1%. So we have this threshold. Currently in the U.S., we're uh, killing about 4%. So roughly 1 out of 25 innocent people are dying in order to bring 25 guilty people to justice. And what is the right amount? How much should a society tolerate to be willing to potentially kill an innocent person if it means bringing a set number of guilty people to justice via capital punishment? In Surah 5, verse 27, we read about Adam's two sons. It reads, recite for them the true history of Adam's two sons. They made an offering and it was accepted from one of them, but not from the other. He said, I will surely kill you. He said, God accepts only from the righteous. If you extend your hand to kill me, I am not extending my hand to kill you. For I reverence God, Lord of the universe. I want you, not me, to bear my sin and your sin. Then you end up with the dwellers of hell. Such is the requital for the transgressors. His ego provoked him into killing his brother. He killed him and ended up with the losers. God then sent a raven to scratch the soil to teach him how to bury his brother's corpse. He said, Woe to me, I failed to be as intelligent as this raven and bury my brother's corpse. He became ridden with remorse. So here we have the story of Adam's two sons. One of them was upset at the other and was willing to kill this individual. And the response from the innocent party was, If you extend your hand to kill me, I am not extending my hand to kill you. For I reverence God, Lord of the universe. What a profound statement that he does not want to bear that sin to kill his brother. That he's willing to basically take his own life if it means that he might be taking the life of someone unjustly. It continues in 532 with one of the most profound statements in the Quran in regards to capital punishment and the sanctity of life. It reads, because of this we decreed for the children of Israel that anyone who murders any person who has not committed murder or horrendous crimes, it shall be as if he murdered all the people. And anyone who spares the life, it shall be as if he spared the lives of all the people. Our messengers went to them with clear proofs and revelations, but most of them, after all this, are still transgressing. God is informing us that the number of innocent people that a society should be willing to kill in order to bring individuals who are guilty to justice via capital punishment, that ratio is one to all of humanity. Meaning that today on this planet we have over 7 billion people that if we kill one innocent person, it's as if we killed 7 billion people. This is the level of sensitivity we should have towards this topic of capital punishment. To tolerate 1%, let alone 4%, let alone 20%, is completely against the Quran. 
Society should not tolerate killing any innocent person at any price because the punishment, the burden on that individual's soul, on that society's soul is not worth it. If we treated every life as valuably as we treat all of humanity, we would realize just how serious of a matter it is to sentence someone to capital punishment. So according to the Quran, the degree of caution that one needs to partake when dealing with capital punishment is all of humanity to one. And this corresponds with God's system. When God annihilates a community, the handful of communities in the past that he documented in the Quran, he saved every single innocent soul who deserved to be saved from that community. In Surah 29, verse 31 and 32, it reads, When our messengers went to Abraham with good news about Isaac's birth, they also said, We are on our way to annihilate the people of that town, Sodom, for its people have been wicked. He said, But Lot is living there. They said, We are fully aware of everyone who lives in it. We will, of course, save him and his family except his wife. She is doomed. Now, one of the misconceptions about Sodom and Gomorrah is that the people attribute that this society was homosexual. And that's true, that yes, they were homosexual, but this was not the degree of their sin. To put it in perspective, when the angels went to Abraham, how did Abraham treat these angels? He went and roasted his prized possession, a fat calf, for these strangers that he did not even know. But what happened when those angels went to, the, uh, to Lot? When the people of Lot found out they were trying to break his door down so they could have their way and rape these traveling aliens. This just gives you a glimpse of how heinous, how corrupt, how disgusting of a society this was. And it says that the people came joyfully in order to do this. This is not just merely the fact that they were conducting homosexual behavior. This is showing the level of deterioration for human life that this society had. In Surah 28, verse 59, it reads, For your Lord never annihilates any community without sending a messenger in the midst thereof to recite our revelations to them. We never annihilate any community unless its people are wicked. The other realities we have to put in perspective is God has all the information. Us human beings, we do not. For us to take the responsibility of capital punishment on our own shoulders, to dole out justice, to determine who gets to live and who gets to die, this is something that is a huge responsibility. Now, what's really fascinating, this is something it took me years to fully understand, and I can't say I under fully understand it even today, is immediately after God tells us just how valuable human life is, where it reads again, because of this we decreed for the children of Israel that anyone who murders any person who had not committed murder or horrendous crimes, it shall be as if he murdered all the people. And anyone who spares a life, it shall be as if he spared the lives of all the people. The immediate next verse, it reads, it says, the just retribution for those who fight God and his messenger and commit horrendous crimes is to be killed or crucified or to have their hands and feet cut off on alternate sides, or to be banished from the land. This is to humiliate them in this life. Then they suffer a far worse retribution in the hereafter. This is a head turner. How is it possible? In one verse, God is saying the sanctity of human life, how sacred it is, how 
the fact of taking one innocent life is equivalent of killing all of humanity or sparing one human life. It's as if you spared all of humanity and then in the immediate next verse, it reads, the just retribution of those who fight God and his messenger and commit horrendous crimes is to be killed or crucified or have their hands and feet cut off on alternate sides or be banished from the land. How do we reconcile this? How do we make sense of this? In one breath, God is telling us just how absolutely sacred human life is. But at the same time, there is a justified situation when someone is allowed to take a life. And to understand the subtleties of this, it's worth looking at the Arabic where it says the just retribution of those who fight God and his messenger. Now, when we use the term fight in English, we typically associate that with one of two extremes. Either it's a violent altercation where there's physical aggression or it's someone who's arguing. And the problem is when you read it in the English, it's hard to distinguish which fighting is this. Now, obviously, you can make a logical argument to why this is a physical altercation and not just someone who's arguing or disagreeing. But the Arabic is very clear. The word that's used for fighting is yoharibuna. Harab means war. These are individuals who literally are waging war against God and his messenger. This is not the mere exchanging of words. This is not mocking. These are individuals who are waging war. And when you think about the concept of God and his messenger, these are godly principles. God advocates for freedom of speech, freedom of religion, for individuals to not be oppressed, for individuals not to be uh, trampled upon. That individuals, societies who do this, who wage war on these principles, that against these individuals who are active combatants, against Quranic concepts, that these individuals, during times of war, a state can choose to take their life. But this is not just merely someone who has a, a difference of opinion, someone who writes a nasty news article. This is strictly in the context of war. Because the reality is, all throughout history, societies have gone to war. And it would be strange if God did not address when is it justified for a state in order to carry out capital punishment against an enemy combatant. This is something every state has to wrestle with. And God is telling us, not only are they authorized, but also in the previous verse, warning against a society from abusing this power, from abusing this right. You know, it would be great if everyone could just get along and we can reason things out and not resort to aggression and fighting. But sadly, that's not the state of affairs. You have individuals like the Taliban, ISIS, Boko Haram, doing horrendous acts, taking the lives of innocent people, cutting off the heads of individuals. These, you cannot reason and logic with them. You cannot show them that, hey, the way that they believe is wrong. They believe that it's righteous, the actions they're carrying out. And God is calling this one of the most horrendous things to attribute lies and vice to God. Consistently throughout the entire Quran, when it talks about taking the life of another individual, it's always in the context of war. If we look at the root harab, war, in the Quran, we see that it's consistently, these are the verses that individuals are justifying uh, using aggression. But again, the context is always in relation to war.
And this becomes clearly obvious when we look at just the immediate next verse in 534. It says, Exempted are those who repent before you overcome them. You should know that God is forgiver most merciful. This is showing that, look, this is a situation where there's a battle, a war, a fight that's progressing. And God is even saying that if you overcome them and they repent, they surrender, you're not allowed to carry out capital punishment. And if you look at the other verses where the root harab is used, we see that it's always in the context of war. So for instance, in Surah 47 verse 4, it reads, If you encounter in war those who disbelieve, you may strike the necks. If you take them as captives, you may set them free or ransom them until the war ends. Had God willed, he could have granted you victory without war. But he thus tests you by one another. As for those who get killed in the cause of God, he will never put their sacrifice to waste. In Surah 8 verse 57, we see again the, the same, word, uh, same word Al-Harab. It reads, Therefore, if you encounter them in war, you shall set them up as a deterrent example for those who come after them, that they may take heed. God is setting specific guidelines for when we are allowed to conduct war and what we are allowed to do during war. And these verses are best depicted in Surah 2 verse 190 through 194 where it discusses the rules of war. It says, You may fight in the cause of God against those who attack you, but do not aggress. God does not love the aggressors. This is an umbrella rule within the Quran, is that a submitter is never allowed to be an aggressor. We can only defend ourselves. It continues in 2.191, it says, You may kill those who wage war against you, and you may evict them whence they evicted you. Oppression is worse than murder. Do not fight them at the sacred mosque unless they attack you therein. If they attack you, you may kill them. This is the just retribution for those who, disbelievers. If they refrain, then God is forgiver most merciful. You may also fight them to eliminate oppression and to worship God freely. If they refrain, you shall not aggress. Aggression is permitted only against the aggressors. During the sacred months, aggression may be met with an equivalent response. If they attack you, you may retaliate by inflicting an equitable retribution. You shall observe God and know that God is with the righteous. God is setting the ground rules, the Geneva Conventions for what is allowed during war. That a society is allowed to fight back to defend themselves. That they are allowed to take the lives of those who are attacking and trying to take their lives, that this is justified, and that they are never under any circumstances allowed to oppress or to be aggressors in any situation. This is absolutely prohibited through the verses of the Quran. In Surah 4 verse 94 it reads, O you who believe, if you strike in the cause of God, you shall be absolutely sure do not say to one who offers you peace, you are not a believer, seeking the spoils of this world, for God possesses infinite spoils. Remember that you used to be like them, and God blessed you. Therefore, you shall be absolutely sure before you strike. God is fully cognizant of everything you do. So to recap, God is informing us just how sacred human life is and how much care we should make sure not to act in an unjust manner, not to take someone's life, even during war, if they do not fall within the criteria. That killing one innocent person is as if you killed all of humanity. 
But if you resort to patience, it's as if you spared the lives of all of the human beings on this planet. So, does this mean that as a society, we are not allowed to carry out capital punishment? What I interpret from this is that this is regarding a state. A state cannot carry out capital punishment outside of war. That under the confines of war, they are allowed to take lives. But when it comes to capital punishment, how we understand it, someone commits a uh, murder and the, the decision is, do we put that individual to death? This verse is best covered in Surah 2 verse 178 where it talks about specifically this form of capital punishment. It reads, O you who believe, equivalence is the law decreed for you when dealing with murder. The free for the free, the slave for the slave, the female for the female. If one is pardoned by the victim's kin, an appreciative response is in order, and an equitable compensation shall be paid. This is an alleviation from your Lord and mercy anyone who transgresses beyond this, incurs a painful retribution. And in the following verse, in Surah 2, verse 179, God clarifies this. It says, Equivalence is a life-saving law for you, O you who possess intelligence, that you may be righteous. God is creating justifications in this verse that for a lot of people it's hard to grasp. But God is saying that if hypothetically, a slave kills a free person, that that slave cannot be given capital punishment and vice versa. Or a woman kills a man or a man kills a woman. Now, God is setting boundaries here that it has to be equitable, meaning one life for one life. In Appendix 36 of the Quran written by Rashad Khalifa, we read, In dealing with murder, the Quran definitely discourages capital punishment. The free for the free, the slave for the slave, the female for the female. Due to human meanness and injustice, many people cannot even imagine what this chronic law says. They refuse to accept the clear injunctions that strict equivalence must be observed. If a woman kills a man or a man kills a woman, or a slave kills a free person or a free person kills a slave, capital punishment cannot be applied. The Quran prefers that the murderer compensate the victim's family. Killing the murderer does not bring the victim's family back, nor does the family of the victim benefit from executing the murderer. The compensation, however, must be sufficient to be a deterrent for others. In submission, Islam, the victim and or the victim's family are judges for all crimes. They decide what the punishment shall be under the supervision of a person who knows the Quran. Personally, my belief is, that the family that wants to carry out the death penalty, that the family member be the one who carries out that act. I believe this is the part of the deterrent for capital punishment because if we are saying we are wanting justice doled out, that we want that person to be put to death for killing our beloved family member, that that individual who is making that decree has to be the one who carries out the act. We cannot outsource this to the state. It's not their responsibility. No one can put that burden on their shoulders except for the victim who suffered that loss. But God gives every excuse to that individual, that family member who is allowed to decree that they want to carry out capital punishment to incentivize them not to do such an act. 
In Surah 16, starting from verse 126, it reads, And if you punish, you shall inflict an equivalent punishment. But if you resort to patience instead of revenge, it would be better for the patient ones. You shall resort to patience, and your patience is attainable only with God's help. Do not grieve over them, and do not be annoyed by their schemes. God is with those who lead a righteous life and those who are charitable. God is advocating to forgive and is attributing this as a form of charity, that this is going to benefit the soul of the individual. In Surah 42, starting from verse 37 through verse 43, we read about the traits of the believers. It reads, They avoid gross sins and vice, and when angered, they forgive. They respond to their Lord by observing the contact prayer Salat. Their affairs are decided after due consultation among themselves, and from our provisions to them they give to charity. When gross injustice befalls them, they stand up for their rights. Although the just requital for an injustice is an equivalent retribution, those who pardon and maintain righteousness are rewarded by God. He does not love the unjust. Certainly, those who stand up for their rights when injustice befalls them are not committing any error. The wrong ones are those who treat the people unjustly and resort to aggression without provocation. These have incurred a painful retribution. Resorting to patience and forgiveness reflects a true strength of character. God is letting us know that we have the right to stand up for our rights, that we have the right to respond in an equitable response, meaning that if someone takes the life of a loved one, I have the right to dole out capital punishment towards that individual, assuming it is in line with Surah 2 verse 178 where it reads, the free for the free, the slave for the slave, the woman for the woman. But if I resort to patience instead of revenge, then I allow God to be the judge, for God to be the arbitrator. Because if I think that I can take justice in my own hands, that I'm the one who's taken the life of someone else, I'm missing one of the greatest beliefs that a believer has, is that there is a day of judgment. That there's going to be a day where every single soul is going to be held accountable. To think that I need to carry out justice in this world in order to set things right, is almost forgetting that God is the one who's going to set those terms and no one is going to suffer the least bit of injustice. That if anyone did anything wrong and horrendous in this life, if they don't pay for it here, then they will pay for it in, for all of eternity in the hereafter. Surah 99, starting from the beginning to verse 8, it reads, In the name of God, most gracious, most merciful. When the earth is severely quaked and the earth ejects its loads and the human will wonder what is happening on that day, it will tell its news that your Lord has commanded it on that day, the people will issue from every direction to be shown their works. Whoever does an atom's weight of good will see it and whoever does an atom's weight of evil will see it. So to think that anyone can avoid paying for a transgression is forgetting that God is the one who's going to hold everyone accountable, if not in this world, then definitely in the hereafter. And it reads in Surah 40 verse 17, it says, On that day every soul will be requited for whatever it had earned. There will be no injustice on that day. God is most efficient in reckoning. Now, again, to recap, 
God is saying when it comes to the state, the only time that a state can carry out capital punishment is in the context of an active war, an enemy combatant who's actively fighting, that you are never allowed to be an aggressor. And God is saying that the capital punishment in the way that we have it in a jail system can only be carried out if the victim's family chooses to go down that route. But God is giving them every excuse to appeal to their better judgment that what if this person is innocent? That if you happen to kill an innocent person, it's as if you killed all of humanity. That if you leave the matter to God, God will reward you for it tremendously in this life and the hereafter. And that if you truly believe in God, you will know that no one will suffer any injustice, that everyone will be paid back for every good they've done and every evil deed that they committed. Now I want to end this podcast with one last story. In 2007, Abdullah Hussein Zadeh was stabbed and killed in a street brawl in a small town in Iran when he was only 18 years old. The person who took his life, Bilal, was someone he played soccer with, who he himself was a teenager at the time. And because of this, Bilal was sentenced to death. For seven years, he waited for his death to be carried out. And on the day of his execution, he was blindfolded and taken out as his mother sat in the crowd mourning and crying for his son's inevitable fate. As he got up to the platform and had the noose tied around his neck, standing next to him was Abdullah's mother, Samira. This was the second son that she lost because her youngest son died when he was only 11 years old in a motorbike accident. And overwhelmed with grief for losing two children, she was ready to see her son's murderer brought to justice. As he was standing upon the chair with the noose tied around his neck, Bilal was sure that he was about to die. And it was at that moment Samare got up, slapped Bilal in the face, and said, I forgive you for killing my son. Samara did something that I can't imagine the pain and anguish someone must feel for knowing that your son's murder is right there, about to have their life taken over to be able to dole out that capital punishment, but for her to take the higher moral ground and recognize that the mother of Bilal, who's sitting in the audience about to see her son die for something she had no part in, that she was willing to grow and overcome this situation and by God's leave, resort to patience instead of revenge. We all have the opportunity at some time to be the enforcers of justice, to carry out a punishment for someone who absolutely deserves it. But as God stated, that if we resort to patience instead of revenge, that if we take God's words for all the value that they have, that this is a true strength of character. And just like Adam's son, the righteous one, who made the claim 
and said, If you extend your hand to kill me, I am not extending my hand to kill you, for I reverence God, Lord of the universe. This is what every submitter should strive for, to have that level of conviction, that level of trust in God, to become our best selves, to not have revenge, get the best of us. Because God forbid if we're wrong, God forbid if we become the aggressors, then God is telling us that we're committing one of the most heinous crimes. That if we accidentally choose to take the life of someone who ends up being innocent, it's as if we killed all of humanity. But alternatively, the greatness of the act of Abdullah's mother, it's as if she spared the lives of all of humanity. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments, questions, please send us a note at QuranTalk at gmail.com. If you want to follow along the verses of the Quran, there is no better source than reading the Quran itself. For that, we created the Quran Study app on the iOS App Store, where you can look at every single verse, understand the Arabic, understand every word, and how it's used throughout the entire Quran. So you can learn and study these matters for yourself and come to your own conclusions. So until next time, peace and God bless.